I've got some really exciting news for y'all. We have been nominated for a Webby for Best Technology Podcast. A great big thank you for making this Webby a possibility. If you want to vote for the Traceroute Podcast for the People's Voice Award on the Webbies, go to bit.ly slash traceroutewebby. That's bit.ly slash traceroutewebby. Or click the link that is included in the show notes. You're listening to Traceroute, a podcast about the inner workings of our digital world. I'm Amy Toby. I'm Fen Aldrich. And I'm John Taylor. And I thought we'd kick things off here looking at a website together, since we're all just kind of staring into a computer screen anyway. I think you've heard of this website before. It's called the Verica Open Incident Database. Oh, yeah. The Void. Oh, yeah. We know those people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We can all stare into the void together. Yeah. And we're going to actually uh, talk with the people who uh, created this database. But uh, before we do, I thought we should jump in and take a look at some of the incidents listed here. It's at thevoid.community. And I've got this one from February 15th. Well, I just accidentally took down Twitter. Uh, <laughs> well, so, uh, you broke Reddit, the Pi Day outage. Down for 314 minutes, no less. Wow. <laughs> wow. Nailed it. Nailed Pi Day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. I mean, and there, there are incidents of all different kinds. There's even um, FAA ground stoppage here. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There was a really good one recently from the FAA about a near miss. Oh, that was where a, I think a plane had a tail hit. It's it's actually the one that's listed here, January twenty sixth. Oh, Alaska good, Airlines. good. That one that's a wonderful report yeah. because it, it's a it's a near miss, and these are super duper interesting because usually we talk about incidents where a thing has happened and impacted customers or impacted the audience. A near miss is something like a plane has a tail strike as it's taking off. It doesn't actually harm anyone. The passengers are okay. But you still go do this deep investigation, and when you do, you discover issues that prevent a more serious disaster from happening. Yeah, so that's the part that I find really fascinating. Like this incident up above, a a woman named Leah Culver, who was a Twitter employee, she turned on a Spaces feature that didn't perform well at scale, and then Twitter just went down. Not long after that, the site's stability team managed to roll it back, and Twitter was up and running again. And though Leah was later laid off from Twitter, she was not fired as a result of this error. Instead, it was reported as an incident and posted online for everyone and anyone to see. How did this happen? How did errors evolve into incidents? And why does this seem to be a uniquely tech industry phenomenon? Do either of you have a personal experience in a former job or or something where it, it wasn't that way, where the culture was more of how do I cover myself for this error than how do I report and or learn from this error? Lots of experiences with that. In fact, that's like what I've done for a job for a long time is reversing that behavior because that's the natural tendency of most folks, because most folks, even in tech, are working a job because they got to eat. And it creates a situation where there's pressure on folks to not admit when they messed up or when a mistake has happened that they feel responsible for, even if they're not really responsible for it. How about you, Fen? Anything that comes to mind? 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, probably several examples throughout careers because of that tendency, because most organizations are a bit, uh, they want to place the blame for it somewhere, right? And like having a person to point to who made the mistake and be like, we got rid of that person, problem fixed, Mm -hmm. um, makes people feel better. Tech didn't always get a pass from the consequences of errors. And certainly tech never got an exemption from the fear of what consequences might occur if mistakes were made. And perhaps the greatest historical example of this was a demonstration given for the Fall Joint Computer Conference in San Francisco in December of 1968. The demonstration had the inauspicious title of A Research Center for Augmenting Human Intellect. But for Douglas Engelbart, the head of the Augmentation Research Center at Stanford, this presentation was the culmination of his life's work. The live demonstration Engelbart held that day featured the introduction of a complete computer hardware and software package called the Online System, or NLS. The idea behind the NLS was to free computing from merely being about number crunching and for it to become a tool for communication and information retrieval, accessible to everyone. Engelbart needed this demonstration to go off without a hitch. But it didn't. I hope you'll go along with this rather unusual setting, and I should tell you that I'm backed up by quite a staff of people between here and Menlo Park, where Stanford Research is located. And uh, if every one of us does our job well, it'll all go very interesting, I think. At one point in the demonstration, Engelbart wanted to show that if you accidentally delete a file, the machine can reload it if you saved it. But as he tells the audience, Unfortunately, I didn't save enough. And he can't bring it back. Two minutes later, the machine is supposed to organize items on a shopping list. But... All right, I'm going to try it again. I suspect that something's going wrong, and I would call up the programmer or the hardware man <laughs> and tell him I made it. <laughs> Produce. <laughs> I really haven't warmed up to this thing yet. The screen goes black for eight seconds, Select followed F- by an X- audio cutoff for another 19 seconds. The error code illegal entity flashes on the screen twice, and later, the entire screen freezes. The screen then goes black for another five seconds. There are at least 30 separate occasions where the presentation does not go according to plan. In fact, because of the errors and the delay they caused, Engelbart has to skip the entire last 10 minutes of the demonstration. They're purposely making that dim so that I'll hurry. Well, I got to ask you something. Sure. Have you heard of um, the demo gods? <laughs> I have not. So th- there's a concept. So like everyone who does a live demo basically always runs into this. It's kind of like a common trope in live demos. I think it predates computers even, right? And so I, like what I'm saying is like there is some precedence for for having a successful demo that has errors in it. People do it all the time. They do like a live live demo on stage at a conference and it worked the hundred times they tried it before the conference. Mm-hmm. And then on stage, some small mm-hmm. thing went wrong and they go, oh crap, something went wrong. And then the whole audience goes, 
Ah, uh, it must be the demo gods didn't like you today. <laughs> All right. So as much as I'd love to think that I wouldn't get fired for a bad demo because my boss understood that a tech-oriented deity wasn't on my side that day, I don't think that's why I wouldn't be filing for unemployment. No. For some reason, tech looks at and reacts to errors in ways that other industries don't. For example, in 2012, heads rolled at J.P. Morgan when a cut-and-paste error on an Excel spreadsheet cost the company $3.1 billion. In 2005, a single typing error from one employee caused 41 times the number of shares to be sold by a company on the Tokyo Stock Exchange than were meant to be sold. The president of the stock exchange himself resigned over the incident. Now, you may argue that, uh, of course, employees were fired because these are really high-dollar mistakes. Well, in 2021, the big five tech giants generated a combined $1.4 trillion in revenue. So I don't think that's it. A paradigm shift occurred in tech that didn't happen in other industries. Something that changed how technologists in particular look at errors. Somebody gave the tech industry permission to look at mistakes in an entirely different way. Somebody with a lot of influence. And with their fingers on a lot of purse strings. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. On September 12, 1962, President John F. Kennedy told the science community in America to do the impossible. He decided we were going to put a man on the moon within seven years. And this was only 35 years after Lindbergh made the first solo transatlantic flight. And JFK's reason we were going to put a man on the moon, Cold War politics aside, was because it was hard to do. That mandate, that reasoning, implicitly gave engineers and computer scientists a green light to look at errors in a fundamentally different way. But this paradigm shift would also require massive cultural changes, changes in the way we talk about and react to errors and mistakes. And even in the tech space, those changes were going to be as JFK put it, hard. Even if you work at a psychologically safe organization, and in theory, you should be able to be vulnerable about any kind of mistake or error or thing that went wrong, but people still have this kind of fundamental fear because this job is like how I feed my family. If you can remove that pressure of like, if I admit a mistake, I am going to potentially not be able to survive anymore. Like... That is strong pressure to not admit that you are doing things and not actually learn from incidents because, like, you have to create this reality in which you are the 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 perfect worker uh, in order to maintain that. And so these movements always push for more power for workers, like, because they have to. Like, you have to be able to drive to a point where someone can say, hey, I did this and here's what went wrong and, and not worry <laughs> about them immediately losing their job or losing their livelihood or not being able to provide for their, their family, which is yeah. a much stronger pressure than, like – Yes. Did product come out okay? Yeah. And that's interesting because you go from this, par there's this paradigm shift from, oh, that wasn't supposed to happen to, we know these things happen. Right. 
And, and and so I guess that that's that's a question that I have is like, where did this sort of turn around? Where did where and when did we go from? Oh my God, that's an error, and I I feel ashamed, and I'm going to lose my job. To <laughs> we need to find all the incidents that we can. We need to uh, you know, e- even changing from error to incident. Where and when did that really start to happen? Challenger. We started with Challenger. T minus ten, nine, eight, seven, six. We have main engine start. Four, three, two. One, and liftoff, liftoff of the 25th Space Shuttle mission, and it has cleared the tower. In January of 86, I was living in this crappy old house just off campus with about five other people. And though I didn't have school that day, I set my alarm early enough so that I could wake up and watch the launch of the Space Shuttle Challenger. Because I haven't missed a single launch since the inaugural flight of Columbia back in 1981. And the year earlier, even, my friends and I journeyed out to the high desert to watch the space shuttle land at Edwards Air Force Base. So I stood there, you know, in front of my ancient TV with the little rabbit ears on top, sipping my coffee, just absolutely geeking out as this marvel of engineering roared off the launch pad and into the clear blue Florida sky. Sorry. I had this friend. Uh, I had this friend who worked for NASA. And uh, she was really good friends with um, the pilot of the Challenger. And she called me. And I had never heard her cry before. And then one minute and 13 seconds into this picture-perfect, by-the-numbers launch, the unthinkable happened. Flight controllers here looking very carefully at the situation. Obviously a major malfunction. The Challenger broke apart, 46,000 feet above the Atlantic Ocean. We have no downlink. Killing all seven crew members on board. Flight dynamics officer that the vehicle has exploded. Flight director confirms that. We are uh, looking at uh, checking with the recovery forces to see uh, what can be done at this point. The cause of the disaster was the failure of the primary and secondary redundant O-ring seals in a joint in the shuttle's right solid rocket booster. The rubber O-rings froze up in the low morning temperatures, reducing their ability to seal the joints. The seals were breached after liftoff, and hot pressurized gas from within the SRB leaked and eventually burned all the way through to the main propellant tank. But following an investigation that occurred in tandem with a 32-month hiatus of the space shuttle program, it was discovered that there was more going on than just engineering errors. Most resilience folks think it started with Challenger where they started to think differently about safety at large scale. And so that's where the research started around resilience engineering, where we talk a lot about how incidents work. 
and how to learn from them. And why it's so important is because that's where they started to discover things like um, normalization of deviance. That, that wasn't really a concept that was used before. Before that, what they would do is go and be like, which engineer put that O-ring in the shuttle and go fire them? <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Right. And then when Challenger happened, it involved everybody. There wasn't a smoking gun. There wasn't a single error. There was just this huge chain of causality. And so they had no choice but to face this reality that errors are more complex than this idea of a root cause. Tell me a little bit more about, what did you call it? The, the normalization of deviancy? Mm -hmm. Aside from being my typical Saturday night, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> I like yours better. <laughs> it, it means what you sort of alluded to in the lead up, which was something happens and somebody notices it. So an O-ring fails in the case of the mm -hmm. Challenger. When the shuttle comes back and they inspect it, they notice, oh, that O-ring failed. But the secondary O-ring succeeded. So no big deal. We replace the O-ring and we move on. And this happens again in the next launch. And it happens again in the next launch. And then everybody assumes that one of the O-rings failing is no big deal. Yeah. So they don't actually address the issue of a failing O-ring. They just go, well, that just always happens. Uh, you know, just kick the machine and move on. Yeah. And so we see this all over in life, right? Oh, it just does that sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it just does that. And you bang it a couple, do percussive maintenance, and then it, it comes back and it's cool. When really what you need to do is take it apart and clean some things and put it back together the right way. And so that's normalization of deviance is when we just kind of, something that, that isn't right, we get used to it, it becomes normal. And so we lose sensitivity to it. And then it becomes one of the factors and then another factor goes wrong, and obviously now we actually have an accident. So, the normalization of deviance is something that occurs progressively, right, over time. So if that's the case, you can make an argument that the normalization of deviance that created the Challenger disaster finds its roots in another incident that took place almost 16 years earlier, Apollo 13. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. Experts note that one of the things that helped prevent the Apollo 13 mission from becoming a fatal catastrophe, aside from like the incredible ingenuity involved, was the number of redundant systems on board the spacecraft. Scientists and engineers were able to repurpose entire systems on the fly and bring home these three astronauts safely back to Earth. Though there were definitely reports and inquiries and program delays for sure, the genius of redundant systems was eventually reinforced, which resulted in a normalization of deviance. When Challenger was lost with seven crew members on board, that catastrophe brought to light the need to change the culture entirely. Interestingly, that same year we lost Challenger, two Japanese researchers introduced the term scrum in the context of product development in their 1986 Harvard Business Review article, The New New Product Development Game. The authors described a new approach to commercial product development that would increase speed and flexibility based on case studies from other industries, from manufacturing firms in automotive and photocopier and printer industries. But the idea of scrum didn't really take off until another newfangled technology began to emerge, the internet. 
Can you explain what internet is? So the basic idea of the Scrum framework was to allow for continuous feedback and flexibility. It required teams to self-organize by encouraging physical co-location or close online collaboration. So in other words, the closer you work together, the less likely the chance of miscommunication and other errors. Scrum eventually sees widespread adoption within the software industry especially. Then in 2001, several technologists publish the Manifesto for Agile Software Development. The Agile Manifesto took the ideas of Scrum to the next level. And for evangelists who espoused these new sets of tools and practices, evangelists like Andrew Clay Schaefer, principal at Ergonautic, Agile was a game changer, it, sort of. When I first got into the startups, I, I literally like thought Agile was the dumbest thing ever, right? So it was like super dumb. And it was just because it was this vanilla, wired down scrum thing where, you know, just like a lot of ritual and no real understanding. To me, it's just basically like baby waterfall. And everyone sort of believes that if you stop writing documentation and start having standups that you're somehow magically going to get software, which I never thought worked or was a good idea. But it wasn't the quantity of human interaction that Andrew objected to. It was the quality. But I, I think it's a false dichotomy to say, like, you have to sacrifice culture to have good technical practices. In fact, I would say that in order to have those high performing, you know, team dynamics, you, you, you have those also, right? You're faster, you're safer, and everyone's happier. For Andrew, this new way of looking at the interactions and communications between teams needed to be dependent on the team's mutual goals. The type of process that you have is going to be different depending on the scale and the criticality of the work you're going to do, right? So then if you are building uh, something like Flickr, which is literally putting cat pictures on the internet, then the types of process you can get away with at the scale and the complexity and the criticality is different than if you're trying to solve problems where there's financial transactions involved and then different still from the, the problems where there's life and death involved. More and more, tech companies that adopted agile practices began looking at errors in a different light. If errors are not only inevitable, but acceptable as part of the process, then maybe we should look at how we can learn and grow from errors. In fact, maybe we shouldn't even look at them as errors at all. Maybe they're just incidents. My name is Courtney Nash. I am, as far as we know, the only internet incident librarian in the world. Um, my real title is like research analyst. It's boring. So I like internet incident librarian a lot better. Courtney's background is in cognitive neuroscience. But as she puts it, she ran off to join the internet and ended up working with Microsoft, Amazon, and Fastly. However, it was during her stint with O'Reilly Media when she got involved with some of the early coverage of DevOps, eventually chairing the Velocity Conference with John Alspa. And this is when she started marrying her old interest in cognitive science with complex systems and software. When she was laid off as a result of the pandemic, she received a call from Verica, a company that was using a new technique called, quote, chaos engineering to make systems more secure and less vulnerable to costly incidents, end quote. Verica asked if she'd like to come and do research for them, and Courtney jumped at the chance. Dan Liu had this Kubernetes.af 
repo of collections of incident reports. And I sort of fell down that rabbit hole. And at some point, I had more than we had for those products. I had thousands of these. People were sending them to me. People were giving me their archives. Like, so I built up. And the next thing I knew, I turned around and had this sort of burgeoning database of incident reports, software incident reports. And that turned into what's the void, the Verica Open Incident Database. And that's sort of, it's taken on a life of its own. And so, you know, the joke is that I have the, I have the Dewey Decimal System <laughs> of, of internet incidents. Um, but it kind of has reached that point where if you say like, oh, give me an example of it, I can be like, oh yeah, well, there was that Atlassian outage two years ago, blah, blah, blah. So I spend a lot of time reading these things, but I've also built up a whole, I think we have over 10,000 incidents in the, in, the, in the void now. So I have a lot of data. Okay. So this is exactly what we were talking about when we were staring into the void earlier. So when you put your incident reports out there, just out in the open for everyone to see, is the goal to destigmatize errors that just normally occur as part of the development process? That is exactly the stigma that, <laughs> that I think we're trying yeah. to to combat, right? Is that um, it, it, every, everybody does it, <laughs> you know, right? Like it's 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 a similar push towards like mental health, right? Like, no, people struggle with this stuff. And if we can talk about it openly and with each other, we can help learn from each other. We don't have to do all the work ourselves. Yeah. And it's starting to, you know, rely on each other. So like this is like – if we talk about all of our incidents publicly, other people can learn stuff from what we did. And, you know, you browse through it and something happens. You're like, oh, this sounds familiar. Oh, right. That was this other part that had a, a challenge with this. And here's what they did. And it worked. Oh, look, it worked for us, too. Exactly. Or it didn't. And we learned yet another new thing. <laughs> and sometimes or very often organizations have internal policy and sometimes customer contracts that require them to write these. And so the ones that get written internally are usually very different from what would be available in the Void report or a publicly released retrospective. In essence, the Void database helps to destigmatize incidents, which could make this cultural shift happen exponentially faster. Just as important, the reports allow companies to focus on the incidents themselves as opposed to the people involved in the incidents. So remember that $3.1 billion cut and paste error I mentioned earlier? Incident reporting helps a company to say, perhaps we should implement a new system that doesn't use cut and paste, rather than perhaps we should just fire the person who did the cutting and pasting. Courtney has analyzed a lot of data from the void, and she finds that tech companies are seeing other advantages to incident reporting as well. I think the companies that do this are learning a couple of things. One, it builds trust from their customers, right? It's much worse to say nothing than to say something. It's like, that's PR 101, right? But the folks that are coming out and being incredibly transparent, they're, they're winning over sort of hearts and minds, if you will, of, of the engineering community at the very least. So it also helps from a hiring standpoint. Like people want to go, engineers want to go work at companies that believe that this is important and valuable and that invest in, you know, learning from their incidents and their outages versus sort of blaming engineers and 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 building a culture that's 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 very toxic in that regard. And then the third piece of that for me is is in, from the industry as a whole if if we don't do this, right? Like if we don't take this on and do a good job of it, someone's going to force us to do it in a way that we don't like. <laughs> Which is like the looming specter sort of essentially of regulation, 
right? And 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 uh, that's happening already in the security mm -hmm. industry in, in various ways. And so the question is now, like, would you be forced to report on every availability incident you have? All right. Let's take a look at our checklist here, shall we? Let's see. We've got incident reporting, check. A need for competitive advantage, check. A blameless culture, check. Socio-technical systems, check. Enhanced communication, check. I see. We're talking about DevOps here. Around 2007, people in the software development and IT communities raised concerns that when one team writes and creates software, while another separate team deploys and supports it, sometimes a fatal dysfunction can occur. DevOps was created as a set of practices and tools to integrate and automate the work of software development and IT operations. And for people like Courtney, incident reporting was a natural fit for DevOps. The thing that was so compelling to me as a, as a cognitive scientist about DevOps was I was like, oh, wait, y'all figured out it's actually people? Like, <laughs> yes! <laughs> Welcome to the party, mm -hmm. you know? And so that's why DevOps, DevOps didn't feel revolutionary to me. It felt right. Mm -hmm. um, and and so the, the way that people who practice chaos engineering types of approaches who have uh, learning from incidents, you know, sort of groups and 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 blameless culture, just culture, all of that, are really tapping into that notion that what we're building are socio-technical systems, right? How are people work together with the machines and the systems and the automation and all of this stuff that we're building? So I, I feel like it's just um, it's it's advanced level DevOps. Mm -hmm. It's not just, you know, you you own it, you run it, you have the pager. Like it's it's the way humans work in those systems. It's the way we create success. It's the way that the things we do that create success the majority of the time can also contribute failure. And so it's this much more holistic systemic view. Um and so I think I think for folks, I think it's just like for folks who've been doing DevOps for a long time, you end up here. It's it, you end. This is the next stop mm -hmm. <laughs> on mm -hmm. that road. DevOps was invented and became a concept and took off in the industry. And it was about ten years later before folks like John Allspaw went off and started bringing resilience engineering in as a way to explain why DevOps actually works, why it's important, right? So we went and did this, and it became about continuous integration and continuous deployment. And we didn't really focus on the human issue as much as an industry, right? Some of us who are early DevOps folks have been angry about this the whole time. But, but the movement ended up being about the tools, and they forgot about the yeah. people and process before tools part, part of it. So this has been a thing we've been talking about like as, a, a, as, as humans for a very long time of talking about like, uh, surprises, incidents, errors, whatever we're calling them, because words have meaning but are f uh, squishy. They're they're more complex than like pure cause and effect. Like we're recognizing that the things that we're building and what we're dealing with have so many moving parts and so many people involved, and so many people have so many different understandings of the thing uh, that we can't just assume that somebody did something bad and should be punished. And like. This is true of lots of movements that focus on people and not a uh, economic benefit or a thing that can be sold to you. Like Austin Parker talked about 
uh, very well at SREcon this year about the commodification of all these different movements, right? Like, because before DevOps, we had Agile mm-hmm. that was trying to do this with the software development world and saying, hey, we need to focus on people over the, <laughs> the like process of thing. We need to actually care about what are the results of what we're doing? Is this what we're after? What are the actual goals we're trying to accomplish? And making sure that continues to be true throughout our development life cycle. And then it was like, hey, this applies to more than just writing code and delivering a product. Also, maybe we should think about ops. And is ops actually delivering what we're asking it to? And like, this was DevOps and cared about people uh, and the the socio end of the socio-technical systems. Um, but you can make a lot of money selling the technical end, and it's a lot harder to sell the socio end. Yeah. Because it requires people to do hard work. <laughs> it's funny because there's this saying in DevOps, you can't buy DevOps but I'm willing to sell it. In fact, I think it was you, Fen, that said that when we were preparing for this episode. And as ironic and probably cynical as it is to think that we've come full circle to this point where people are trying to commoditize error, well, Courtney has a different perspective. It's admitting that we are humans in systems made by humans, and we don't always make those systems work well for us. None of us go to, to work to take the internet down, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's not what we do. And so we make the best decisions we can at the time with the information and the context that we have. Like, that's what we're doing day in and day out. And like 90-whatever percent of the time, it works. And perhaps 90-whatever percent is an excellent goal. But what about 100%? Is the bottom line here that we should be looking at removing the human element entirely in order to create systems that are free of error. There's some people that get mad when you talk about root cause, and these same people get real mad when you talk about human error. Uh, and I'm one of those people. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the uh, concept of it is like that. It, that's I think is is actually a misdirection that's happened a lot with DevOps and with software development is thinking like, oh, we want to automate this thing to get the human error out of it. It's never like, oh, someone keeps typing B instead of C. Like, mm-hmm. how do we stop that? Like, oh, by putting a computer there. Like, well, maybe, but like, right? why were they typing B instead of C, right? Like, okay. there's something more interesting there. And they did they think B is correct? Do they keep typing the wrong letter in case, like, maybe we should have a check here to, like, double check? You know, mm-hmm. there's all different ways we can do that. Um, but just removing people from it also removes the thing that makes you able to pivot and adapt and change when something surprising happens in the system. Because surprises do happen in the system. Remember Douglas Engelbart's demonstration from 1968? Remember how it was so riddled with error that he couldn't even finish what he had planned to demonstrate? Well, when the demo finally came to an end, Douglas Engelbart sat alone on a stage in front of 1,000 of his peers. And I thank all the rest of you very much for coming to the dedication ceremonies. And the crowd went absolutely nuts. Engelbart and his team received a standing ovation that rattled the walls of the conference room. The presentation would go on to become known in the history books as the mother of all demos. This 90-minute banger of a demonstration basically set the stage for modern personal computing. Windows, hypertext, graphics, efficient navigation and command input, video conferencing, the computer mouse, word processing, dynamic file linking, revision control, 
and a collaborative real-time editor. The demo was riddled with errors. But because they were learning to look beyond these mistakes, legendary technologists in the audience like Alan Kay, Charles Irby, Andy Van Dam, and Bob Sproul were able to see the genius in this tech and bring it to life. If we vilify the human element in the hardware and software we create, then we're no longer creating systems for humans. Perhaps the biggest mistake we can make is punishing mistakes. Perhaps the mother of all errors is calling it an error in the first place. I think that's part of what the value of something like the mother of all demos does is it shows like, hey, not only is this possible, but we kind of got a working prototype working, or at least we kind of know what it should look and feel like. Uh, even if it's error prone when it when it goes off, now you people have the inspiration like, oh, that's neat. Like, what else could we do? What other cutting edge things could we actually do if we tried? When Douglas Engelbart took the stage on that momentous day in 1968, did he know his demonstration would be riddled with errors? Probably not. But what he might have known is that any errors that did occur wouldn't diminish his ideas. And that made all the difference. When we peel back the layers of the stack, we find our mistakes side by side with our genius. When we look at the amazing things that we've accomplished, we see a trail that weaves through a forest of errors. What tech in particular is trying to do is look at errors as another facet of just being human. And like every aspect of our humanity, we have a choice. Judge it or embrace it. Traceroute is a podcast from Equinix and Stories Bureau. This episode was produced by John Taylor with help from Tim Ballant and Kat Bugseek. It was edited by Joshua Ramsey and mixed by Jeremy Tuttle with additional editing and sound design by Mathar DeLeon. Our theme song was composed by Ty Gibbons. You can check us out on Twitter at origins underscore dev. That's D-E-V. And type origins.dev into your browser for even more stories about the human layer of the stack. We'll leave these links and more, including an episode transcript, down in the show notes. If you enjoyed this show, please share it wherever you hang out online and consider leaving a five-star rating on Apple and Spotify because it really helps other people find the show. I'm Fen Aldrich. Thanks for listening. <laughs>